Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. Hope you guys are doing well this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can grab them and turn to uh, Haggai. And you're going to probably have to use the table of contents to get there. Haggai is a really small book at the back of your Old Testament. And uh, the reason we're in Haggai today is because we've been in a series in the book of Ezra up to this point. Ezra and Nehemiah. It's really two books uh, in our Bible, but in the Hebrew Bible, it's one book. Ezra and Nehemiah. And the whole point of uh, this series that we're in is... Uh, that the Jewish people, the Israelites, have been released from slavery and they're going back home. They're going back to Jerusalem, the land that God gave them. And God has given them two tasks to complete. He says, I want you to rebuild the temple. This is important because the temple is where man meets with God. It's God's house. And then also to come and to restore the city of Jerusalem. It's God's city. And the reason why it's important to us in 2022 is because we have the same mission, although it looks a little different. Jesus says that our temple is no longer a place made of bricks. It's it's not this place. There's nothing unique about this building that you're in today. God's no more here than he is anywhere else. God's temple is now his people. We are the bricks and the stones, so to speak. And so Jesus says, I want you to build my church. I want you to build my people. And then we also have this mission of not just restoring Jerusalem, but restoring the entire world. We're to bring God's kingdom to bear on this world. And where we left off last week in Ezra chapter 4 was the Israelites had made it. They had built the foundation. They had laid the altar for the sacrifices. They throw a big party. They're celebrating. And then their enemies here. When their enemies here, they come and they begin to try to derail things for them. And eventually they, they reach out to King Artaxerxes, the, sire, the king of uh, Persia. And he orders the Jews to stop. And it says that they came and they forced the Jews to stop. And you can imagine how they might feel. After a 500-mile journey, giving up everything they knew in Babylon, making this long journey to do what they thought God wanted them to do. And what do they find? They find opposition. And so they do what a lot of us do. They just gave up. They gave up on building the temple. They began to build their own houses and do their own things. And about 16 years after this, a guy by the name of Haggai shows up. And Haggai's an old preacher. You know, he's he's, he's one of those preachers that uh, scares you a little bit when they preach. He's, he's 70-something years old. He didn't have time to waste. He's going to tell you exactly what needs to be done. And that's what the book of Haggai is. It's very short. It's for what we would call oracles. Haggai doesn't waste a lot of time. He's not telling funny stories. He's saying, guys, get back to work. God sent us here to do something, and we ought to be people who are doing it. Now, for us today, what I want to look at, I'm going to pray for us in a minute, and then we'll jump in, is I really think Haggai lays out uh, some answers to some really important questions. And number one is, I think it lays out for us what God wants. What, what does God want? What does God desire? You might have some ideas in your mind of, you know, what does God want from me? Well, Haggai helps us answer that question. Not only what does God want, but why does God want it? And finally, we'll look at how God accomplishes it. Now, uh, a little bit of... Uh, Something for you to know before we jump into this is I'm running on about four hours of sleep and uh, didn't know I was going to preach this message until about 23 hours ago. So I'm lowering expectations and I'm also saying to you, if I say something inappropriate, you can't blame me. Uh, We're just going to we're going to cut it out of the podcast and keep it as a secret. okay? and I'm really excited because today is my favorite holiday. You think February 20th. What's that? It's the Daytona 500. Amen. 
which might mean for you a shorter sermon, because I've got to eat lunch with my family after this, and so the quicker we can get this done, the quicker I can get that done, the quicker I can be in my recliner watching the Daytona 500. Amen? Amen. All right. Father God, we, uh, we come before you, and we are so grateful for your presence. Lord, I pray that you would continue to do a work in our heart, as you always do when we are in your presence, when we are gathered together, that you might make us more like you, not just more like you in our actions, God, but that we would... We would want the things that you want. We would desire the things you desire. And Jesus, I know that as we come in this place, there's distractions and there's all sorts of things going on in life. And it's really hard not to think forward to Monday or even what's after this. Jesus, but I pray that for this time we would magnify you. God, every time our mind begins to wander from your glory and your grace and your goodness, I pray that you would gently draw us back to it. Jesus, you and you alone have the power to change us. You and you alone have the power to transform us. Jesus, we need you. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. We're going to jump into Haggai, and I'm just going to walk through it. I'm going to answer these three questions. So as we jump into verses 1 through 4, I want to look at what does God want? What does he want from me? God, what do you want me to do? I think of that terrible movie, The Notebook. I don't know if you guys watched that awful movie. I love my wife, and so of course I sacrificed for it. Uh, And the tears that I cried were just me being sympathetic for my wife. Uh, But in that movie, you know, there's like this this scene where the guy is talking to the girl and he said, what do you want? What do you want from me? And I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel that way with God. Like when my life is falling apart, when it feels like God's not there, when it feels like God's not helping me, when it feels like I'm trying to do all the right things and all the wrong things begin to happen. I just want to look up at the sky and say, what do you want? What are you trying to accomplish right now, God? And that's the question we see answered as we look at Haggai 1, 1 through 4. It says, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. I think it's interesting that Haggai, when he reaches out to get something done, he talks to the leaders. We live in a culture that's kind of weird about leaders. Uh, it, we almost come to the point where it's like, you know, leadership or power in general is completely bad, whether it's in government or in church. And there's kind of a, a move to say all leadership is bad. And that's just simply not true. In fact, any system that says that we don't need leaders is the one you should probably be most weary of because there's usually somebody behind it that is coming up and is leading those kind of movements. But what we do see in the Bible is that what matters severely is what kind of leadership it is. Is it good leadership or is it bad leadership? The problem in the church isn't leadership. The problem in the church is bad leadership. And I will stand before the Lord one day and give an account for my leadership of this church. And you might say, well, that stinks for you. But you're not off the hook either because we all are leaders. We all influence in some way, whether you're a friend, a mentor. You should be. If you're a Christian, you should be discipling younger Christians. And you will give an account for the way that you led them. Maybe in the professional world, you're a leader. Whatever it is, you ought to lead in the way that God wants you to lead. And we see Haggai, he reaches out to him and He's going to talk to the leaders first. In verse 2, he tells them what God said to him. It says, The Lord of armies says this, These people say, The time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. It's been 16 years, and they're like, Yeah, we're going to get to that. We're going to, we're going to get there, but not yet. You know, it's, just, it's just not the right time for us to do this. Which, like, I don't even have to preach on that. You all probably have things in your life that are like that. You know, it's like something you've been putting off for a long time. We call it procrastination, and I get an A-plus in procrastination. I'm very good at procrastination. And the time's not, not right yet. Verse 3, it says, The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. And this is a rhetorical question. Uh, I've learned in marriage that there are some questions that I'm not supposed to answer. 
uh, the question in itself is a statement. And uh, this is what we see here. This is a question that Haggai and God are not expecting an answer to. It is to prove a point to these people. It says, is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? And of course, the obvious answer is no. They're paneled houses. So in, in our culture, it'd be like, you know, you're not doing what God called you to do, but you have granite uh, countertops. You're not doing what God called you to do, but you not only have a house, you also have a vacation house in the mountains. See, it's, it's actually not anything to do with the time being right. It's about your priorities. Your priorities are wrong. You're letting what God wants to go away in ruins while you live in your big fancy houses. And now here we can make a mistake when we think about what God wants, because you can go one of two ways. When you look at this, you can say, see, this is what God wants. He wants us just to follow the rules. God wants to, doesn't want me to have anything nice. God just wants me to do what he wants me to do. I'm supposed to give all my money to the church. I'm supposed to follow all the rules. I'm supposed to you know, never curse and never drink and, and just never go to a rated R movie unless, of course, it's about Jesus. And I can go to that. But, but probably all these things, if I follow these rules, God will be satisfied. Basically, it's the gospel of God wants you to be a moral person, a good person. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, yeah, I thought that's what God wanted. But that's not what God wants. In fact, in Luke chapter 15 in the New Testament, Jesus tells the story of two brothers. And the older brother is the rule follower. And the rule follower is the one who misses the kingdom of God. The one who does everything right is the one who doesn't get it. Jesus isn't interested in us just simply following rules or being a legalistic person. And if you're a parent, you understand this. You don't want your kids just to follow rules because you told them to. You want them to be the kind of person that follows rules because they want to. You know, you probably don't just want your kids to not do drugs when you're with them. You want them to be the kind of people who won't do drugs anytime. Why? Well, because you're not interested in them just following rules for the sake of the rules. You're interested in the rules because you love them. And it's the same with Jesus here. And if you think the Christian message is all about following rules, then you miss the point here. But on the other side of that, you can go the other direction and say, God doesn't really care about anything. And there's a version of the gospel that says, you know, you, you pray a prayer and you try your hardest. And so what if you mess up? You know, uh, that we, I was at Eric Church's concert last night. And he's got a, he's got a couple songs about Jesus. Yeah, you know, they're kind of about Jesus. They, they say Jesus's name. And, uh, you know, one of the songs I like is uh, something about sinners like me. And uh, when he said there will be a long line of sinners in heaven like me, everybody in the place, all the drunk people. Woo! Yeah, that's us. You know, like they don't care. But they just assume that God is like this kind of grandpa in the sky that's like, that's all right, whatever you guys want to do, you know, just do what you do and I'll take care of the rest of my son. We kind of get that idea. That's kind of the opposite of the legalism idea. But that's not what God's saying here. He's not interested in just their happiness, is he? If he was interested in their happiness, he would say, build those paneled houses and I'm going to send you the resources to do it. There's kind of a version of Christianity that does that, is there not? You know, if you pray enough, if you give enough, then God will give you what you want. God's just really a vending machine to help you build your paneled houses. God exists to fulfill your desires. Well, we don't have to read very much of Jesus' life to see that that's not true. Because the Savior that we follow died on a cross. He was executed by the Roman Empire. So what, what does God want? But we'll notice that God doesn't say that they can never live in paneled houses. He just says it's not the right time. What God wants them to do and what God wants for you is he wants you to desire what he desires. He wants you to want what he wants. He wants those things to be aligned with each other. Uh, The message of the New Testament is truly this, that Jesus came not to change your behavior. He came to change your heart. He came to take the ought to's and make them want to's. My wife is way better at uh, everything to do with the gym 
And the reason why, the reason why she runs further than me, she shouldn't lift more than me, but if she was a man, she definitely would because she works way harder than I do at the gym. And the reason is the difference between the two of us is when I wake up, I go, ah, I got to go to the gym so I, I don't gain any more weight. My wife, on the other hand, wakes up and goes, I need to go to the gym because it's my stress relief. I go to the gym. I do the minimum. I'm there. Like I, you know, my, my app says run three miles. I run three miles. I go, oh, I did it. And I leave. Taylor runs three miles and she starts to say, I feel good. And then three miles turns into six miles. And then she does a whole entire weight routine that she didn't know she was going to do before she got there. I mean, I spend many nights alone at home because Taylor's spending like eight hours at the gym. Why? Because she wants to. I feel an obligation to do it. But her desire is to go be at the gym. Well, this is what God wants. This is what Jesus wants. He wants you to desire to follow him, to desire what he desires. Uh, in fact, in First uh, Corinthians, we see Paul say that we are to have the mind of Christ. That in other words, and this is one of the things we say around here, our mission has sent partly is to see everyday people living like Jesus would live if he were them in everyday life. Now, what would what would Jesus do is a, a pretty good movement. It had a good start. But the, the problem with that is I'm not Jesus. <laughs> you know, like I, I don't have divine powers within me. So there are some times that Jesus would do things probably different than what I would do. But the better question is what would Jesus do if he were me? If Jesus had my history, Jesus had my skills, if Jesus had my obstacles, what would he do? If I were to think like Jesus, what would I think? If I were to do what Jesus would do, what would I do? I want to be an apprentice of Jesus. I want to ask myself at all times. I want to have the mind of Christ to desire what Jesus desires. That's what God wants for us. Now, the next question and probably the more important question is why does God want that? Why does God want me to desire what he desires? Is it some kind of egotistical thing where it's like, you know, God just wants me to work on what he needs me to work on? I mean, he is God, so that would be okay. Uh, but that's not why God wants it. Look at verses, uh, verses 5 through 8 here. Oh, my tongue got stuck there for a second. 5 through 8. Uh, and I honestly could have wrote this yesterday, and it would have applied to all of our lives. Uh, that, that's how relevant this is from 2,500 years ago. Verse 5. Now the Lord of armies says this. Think carefully about your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. The Lord of armies says this. Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down the lumber and build the house. And I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. Verse six applies a lot to my own life. You know, and I think all of our lives, we live in the richest nation in the world. And yet how many of us feel broke? It's like we make more money and our, our purses have holes in it is the, the metaphor that Haggai uses. He says, you drink, but your, your thirst is never quenched. What is he saying? He's saying that the things we desire matter because we will become a slave to them. And all things in this world that we might desire, whether it be power, money, sex, alcohol, Whatever it is, you fill in the blank. All of those appetites, the more you eat of them, the more you want of them. There's never enough money. Uh, I was thinking of a story of Rockefeller in the, in the 20s. He was this massively rich guy. And, and one reporter asked him, he said, you know, when will it be enough? When will you have enough money? And he said, I just need one more dollar. Isn't that so much like all of us? Just one more. So watch this one more time. Eat this one more time. Drink this one more time. Do this one more time. We're all trying to fill this hole. 
And we fill this hole with things that are actually not filling the hole. They're, they're simply making the hole bigger. We need more and more and more and more of it to be satisfied. So why does God want us to desire what he desires? Because he made us. He loves us. And he knows what will fulfill us. And it is only through following his mission and through experiencing his love and his grace by pursuing and desiring him it is the only appetite that we can have that will be fully satisfied and fulfilled. And it's, it's like uh, if, you, if you had a car and you put sand in it, I, I wouldn't be mad at you. I would just think you were kind of foolish because cars don't run on sand. Well, in the same way, God made you. He knows what you run on. And when we try to fill up our hearts with all of these other things, what does it do? It hurts the people that he loves. And you guys have probably all seen people like this who continue to make the same mistakes over and over and over and over again. And isn't it so much easier to see other people's mistakes than our own? Like I can see when you're getting into a toxic relationship. I'm like, oh, that's not going to end well. But I don't always see it when I'm in a friendship with somebody who might be toxic. You know, I, I can see when the decisions you're making. You know, is it really smart to go out to the bar tonight and leave your wife at home? Is it really smart? You know, I can see you making a foolish decision. And maybe you're thinking about that. Blake, should you really have gone to an Eric Church concert last night and then tried to preach? You know, we can see other people's mistakes a lot easier. But we, we don't always see our own. And this is what Haggai is trying to point out to them. And then we, we look at verses uh, 9 through 11. And uh, this is one of those verses that people will use who hate God to make him seem harsh. But hopefully I can change your perspective on it a little bit. That this is coming out of a place of love. Verses 9 through 11. This is God speaking. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Because my house still lies in ruins, while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields on the man and animal. And on all that your hands produce. Well, that seems a little harsh, God, to send a famine to these people simply because they won't build your house. And we can look at that as a sign of judgment. And a lot of us do. I mean, I've heard people when their life's falling apart, they they start to think, you know, what did I do to deserve this? Why is God allowing these things to happen? And they think that God is punishing them. But what we see here is God is not punishing them at all. This is an act of love. There's a difference in punishment and discipline. God has not given up on these people. So he sends this famine because he knows that if he sends them rain, the crops will grow and they will not worship him. They will worship the crops and the crops will not be able to fill the hole that is in their heart. The crops will not be able to do what they needed to do. In fact, the crops will become a God of their own to them and they will begin to worship those crops instead of the one true God. So it's actually an act of love that God would discipline them. In the New Testament, Romans chapter 1 The Apostle Paul says this, and I find it really interesting because it's so different from what many of us think about when we think about God. We tend to think of when God gives us money or God gives us what we want, that it's an act of blessing. But it actually might be an act of judgment. When God gives us over to our desires, that is actually him giving up on us. When God continues to discipline us, when God continues to pry things out of our hands, it means he's a good father who loves us. Romans 1, 24 and 25, it says, Therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator, who is praised forever. Amen. 
See, as long as you're struggling with guilt, as long as you're struggling with a sin, you should know that God has not given up on you. It's when you've been completely given over to your desires and they rule you that you know that God has hardened your heart to the point of no return. And it doesn't take a lot of seeing to see this. In fact, right before I showed up, I got an Amber Alert uh, about a seven-month-old who was stolen in San Antonio, Texas. It said she was wearing a Minnie Mouse onesie. And I don't know why, but that detail really got me. I could just see this little girl. What kind of evil person, what kind of low evil person takes a seven-month-old baby? As somebody whose heart has been so completely hardened that there is nothing about it that is redeemable. Now, that might not be true. God redeems people I don't know. But you can begin to see how people get to that point where they are so hardened against God that there is nothing they can do. And what is that? That's judgment. So you might think losing your job was judgment, but it might be God protecting you from the idol that your job was becoming. You might think that uh, being out of money or not having enough money is, is a sin, but God, or not a sin, but judgment, when, when in reality God knows that if you had that much money, you wouldn't be able to handle it. And we've all seen people who've won the lottery and then it ruined their life. This, these things happen. So it's actually God's grace that he disciplines them. Uh, and if you're a parent, you get this, right? Like you don't let your toddlers do whatever they want. Uh, I heard a, a comedian one time say that the reason God made toddlers so small is because if they were our size, they'd kill us all. <laughs> and uh, I find that to be pretty true. I don't know if you've been around toddlers very much, but they're very destructive beings. They're constantly trying to destruct themselves and others. They're just terrorizing stuff. That, you know, they'll pick up rat poison and eat it if you allow them to do it. They just, they're, they're constantly into stuff. And if you're a good parent, what do you do? You swap their hand when they go for the rat poison. You say no. You pick them up and you take them away from what they desire. You make them cry a little bit. It's not a good parent to say, here, whatever you want. You want Twinkies for dinner? Awesome. Rat poison on top? Let's go for it. Yeah, just destroy the other kid's Legos. That's awesome. That's a bad parent. That's how you get DHS called on you. A good parent disciplines. God is our Heavenly Father, and I know we think we're so mature and grown up. Even the oldest of us in this room might think, well, you know, I'm such and such age old. You know, I, I got life figured out. Compared to an infinite God, you are a toddler. And God sometimes knows what's better for us than we do. And so we might not always understand why things are happening the way they're happening. But I want you to know it's not punishment. It's the discipline of a good, loving Father who's guiding you in the right direction. And then in verses uh, 12 through 14, we see a miracle happen. The prophet preaches and the people actually listen. Now, if you read the Old Testament, every time the prophets speak, usually they end up dead. I mean, they just, they don't, people don't listen to them very often. But here, Haggai says this one thing and everybody's like, yeah, let's do it. Which is an amazing experience, I'm sure. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the Lord their God in the words of the prophet Haggai. Because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, delivered the message to the people. I am with you. This is the Lord's declaration. The Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel. He's the guy who's leading this. Governor of Judah and the spirit of the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, And the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they began to work on the house of the Lord of armies. Their God on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Then we move into chapter 2, and uh, we, we see really the, the main reason why God wants our desires to align with Him. This is the main reason. It says, On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to the high priest of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. 
Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it seem like nothing by comparison? Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. See, from the very beginning of the Bible, what God has wanted. Go back to Adam and Eve. Go all the way to the New Testament. What God wants is his people to partner with him in the work that he is doing. He wants a relationship with you. You can almost think of it as a family business. God wants to work with his kids to restore the world. Does God need me to restore the world? No. In fact, when you see me doing anything good, you're like, wow, there really must be a God if that guy can preach. This is how God works, though. Why? Why would God use us? Because he wants to. And this is why God wants our desires to align, because if you if you are in a relationship with somebody and your desires do not align, what does it cause? It causes conflict. When relationships feel good, it's because our desires are aligning. This morning we were leaving Tulsa, a God forsaken hour, uh, like four something in the morning. And uh, I thought, you know, what would make this better? Some Chick-fil-A. And then I remembered that that cursed place. I'm just kidding. It's Christian chicken. But uh, they don't they're not open on Sundays. That caused conflict in my heart. See, they desire to be closed and I desired them to be open. It was it was a problem. And I, I'm kidding about Chick-fil-A, but in your marriage, I can guarantee you that all of your problems are because you have challenging desires. You know, it's not good if your spouse wants to move to Florida and you want to move to Oregon. It's not going to work. There's not an in-between. You know? It's like if you, if you desire to have kids and your spouse doesn't, you can't have half a kid. It just doesn't work. It causes conflict. And the same is true with God. When, when what we desire isn't what God desires, it causes a, a gap in the relationship. And so what God wants more than anything is not for you to tell him where to join in, but for you to see where God is working and to join in with that, because that is where he is. You know, it's, it's like, uh, you know, my parents are here today. And when I, when I was younger, uh, I, I would try to help with things. I'm sure if you have a kid, they would do the same thing. You know, dad's out in the shop. I want to go help dad do stuff. Dad, can I go help? You know, five, six years old, you're probably not very much help. Uh, or mom's cooking in the kitchen. Mom, I want to help. I want to cook. Now, what your parents do is they let you do that from time to time. You know, come out with me to the shop or come to the kitchen with me. They are not doing that because you're making their cooking more effective. Now, you got flour everywhere. You're getting into stuff you shouldn't be getting into. But why do they do it? Because they love you. Because they want relationship with you. Well, the same is true with our Heavenly Father. He wants us to join in what He is doing because He loves us. And where is God working? Well, He's working in the local church. You should be a part of a local church ministry. If it's not this one, it should be one because that's where God is working. Where is God working? He's working where there are poor people. He is working where there is outcast people. He is working where there are weak people. Are we there? Because if you're anything like me, I often gravitate towards more comfortable places. And then I wonder where God is when I haven't been joining in with Him where He is already working. I uh, heard a pastor talk about, and I've, I've experienced this too on a, on a smaller scale, but he was talking about how he, he was preaching at this big conference and all of his heroes were there. These big pastors, you know, these guys who he looked up to. And uh, they invited him out to dinner. And he was going out to dinner and he was about to walk out the door and, and this missionary who came from Uganda to this conference stopped him. And he said, brother, I just don't, I don't know if I'm going to make it. 
This has been the hardest season of worship in my life, and I just felt like I needed you to pray for me. And he said, in that moment, I was torn. And there was a side of me that wanted to go with my heroes, to go out to eat dinner with them. And there was a part of me that knew what Jesus would do in that moment. That Jesus would let those big wigs go eat, and I would sit with this man from Uganda and allow him to pour out his heart and to pray for him. Friends, this is what I'm talking about. And we all have these choices. If you're a kid at school, you know what that's like. The cool kid table versus the kid everybody's picking on. And you know that you can be the kid who steps in and does the right thing. If, if you're an adult, you know you have more job opportunities. And yet you have a family at home and you know you should be there. We all make these decisions. And what God wants us to do is to make the decisions where he's at. To work with him. That's the main reason why. Now... The, the last question that we will answer is, uh, how will he do it? What does God want? He wants our desires to align. Why? Well, because he loves you. Now, how does God accomplish that? Because I don't know about you, but you really can't just change what you want. Have you ever tried that? You know, I want to be skinny. I'm not skinny. You know, it just, it doesn't work. You can't want your way to wanting. Um, you know, we, I, could, I could give you the perfect diet to follow. I could give you the perfect workout plan to follow, but if you don't have the wanter inside of you, you're not going to do it. You can maybe do it for a couple weeks, but unless you desire it, you're not going to do it. You talk to anybody who's actually quit smoking. It came from a point of them actually wanting. Something happened. Somebody they loved died or they got a diagnosis or something happened that changed their wanter. So how does God change our wanter? Well, verse 6 through the end here gives us some insight into that. It says, for the Lord of armies says this, Once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and the gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. It says he'll shake, he'll shake the earth. What does that mean? <laughs> like we read the Bible sometimes and I think we just go over things like that. And you're like, yeah, shake the earth. Okay. What? What do you mean? Well, in Hebrews, in the New Testament, and I give you the assignment to read this this week. Hebrews chapter 12. It, it gives us some insight into what this means. When God says he's shaking the earth, it means he's, he's reordering things. He's reordering things in the heavens and he's reordering things on earth. That there is a certain way things work. There is an authority on this earth. There's an authority in the heavenly realms. And there will come a day in which he shakes that up. That's what he's telling the Jewish people. The order will be different. And it also means that when he shakes it, all the bad stuff will fall out. And eventually all that will remain is the good stuff, the stuff that God wants. Well, how's he going to do that? And if we look at verses 20 through 23 at the end, it tells us the way he's going to do that is by raising up a king. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of Gentile kingdoms. Which, by the way, would have been laughable to the Jewish people. I mean, they are nothing. Think of like, when we think of the Jewish people, we often think of America just because we live here. So we think of a big, powerful country with a lot of military might. That's not them. It's like one of those countries you've never heard of. Tiny country under this powerful Persian empire. And here's this prophet saying, one day you're going to overthrow all of those kings. Okay. Verse 23. On that day, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will take Zerubbabel. He's, he's the grandson of King David. Or not King David. The grandson of the last king that was in the line of King David. Son of Sheotiel, my servant. 
This is the Lord's declaration. And make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. A signet ring was a ring that a king would use to stamp his name on things. It was, it was his seal of approval. And so what Haggai is saying here is that God has not given up on the line of David. He promised David, one day from your lineage, a king will rule forever. A king will rule over all other kingdoms. And here's God saying, I know you're in slavery. I know it doesn't look good right now. But my signet ring is still on this family. Now, if we fast forward 500 years and we look at the genealogy of Jesus, that's another part of the Bible you often skip over, but Jewish people love it because it tells their story. And in that genealogy, we see that Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-
If, if you uh, are a defiled person and you come to pure people, do the pure people make you pure or do you make them defiled? You make them defiled. And we get this. We're coming out of a pandemic. Uh, I think we're coming out of it. I don't know if it's ever going to end. Uh, where we know that what do you do when you get sick? You quarantine. We don't take a whole bunch of healthy kids and put them with one sick kid hoping the sick kid gets healthy. No. We know that if we put that one sick kid with all the healthy kids, what happens? Before long, they're all sick. But when Jesus shows up, he flips this on its head. And it's one of the reasons why the Jewish people hated him. It's one of the reasons why he was so confusing to them. Because Jesus would come up to a leper and he would touch it. And what would happen was amazing. Jesus wouldn't get leprosy, but the leper would be healed. Jesus would go up to a corpse and he would touch the corpse. And Jesus didn't become undefiled. The corpse began to breathe again. See, the same is true in our own lives. When we come to Jesus, we begin to change. Now, I think a lot of us get this in, in the, the uh, justification sense. In other words, in the sense in which we stand before God. Like, yeah, Jesus paid for my sins. He died for me. You know, I have the status of the Son of God uh, because of what Jesus did. He took my status of sinner and he died with that status. And he gave me all of his privileges and all of his rights. And basically, the way that would be said is I get to go to heaven when I die because of what Jesus did. But what I also want you guys to understand, and uh, Kim A, you guys can go ahead and come back up as we close. I want you to understand that that's also the way that our desires are transformed. That the way you become the person Jesus wants you to become is by coming back to him over and over and over and over and over again, exposing yourself to him. And how do we expose ourselves to Jesus? Well, we do it through what he said. He said it's through my people. He said my people are my body. If you want to be in the presence of somebody, you've got to be in the same room as them. You've got to be in the same body. That's not just what we are doing here, friends. That means I'm surrounding myself with God's people because where two or three are gathered, Jesus says, there I am also. It also means that His Holy Spirit is with me. And His Holy Spirit will often nudge me in certain directions. And I always have the choice to either turn towards Jesus in His presence or to turn away from Jesus in His presence. See, we keep coming back to Jesus. And what happens is over time... We get better. It's Jesus plus time. Our desires change. And that time part is so important. But what we often do is we begin to compare ourselves to other people. Don't do that. Compare yourself to where you were. Now, I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not where I was. I heard a pastor uh, talk just a couple weeks ago. He is a church planner and uh, kind of a rough part of the city. And uh, these people from his old church, the church that gave him money and sent him, came to visit. He was to support the pastor. And uh, they came from a, a really cleaned, buttoned-up church. And uh, they walked in, and he said, they, I could see that they were just really concerned. And uh, they came to me, and they said, Pastor, did you know they're smoking cigarettes outside? And he said, yeah, yeah, I know. They said, they're the, they're the greeters, and they're smoking cigarettes. And he said, yeah, but two weeks ago they were doing cocaine. <laughs> like, you don't know where these people have been. I'll buy them those cigarettes. Because it's not about comparing them to you and the privileges and the things that you've had. It's about comparing them to where they were. And it's Jesus plus time. It's Jesus plus time that equals the transformation we're all seeking. And that happens with the Spirit and with His people. Uh, last night, at the, towards the end of the concert, uh, Eric Church said this thing, and it was, it was really good. I thought about it a lot. Uh, he talked about how he, he never knew if we would ever see a day like this again where all these people were packed in an arena and, and we were celebrating together. And he said, I don't know, but I, just, I feel like we're, we're made for this. Like there's something in our soul that comes alive when we're together, when we're singing together. He even used the word worship. He said, it's, it's like worship when we come together. And then he took a shot of whiskey. Uh, 
And I thought, wouldn't it be really cool if I just finished my sermon with a shot of whiskey? No, that's not what I thought. Uh, what, what I actually thought was, man, the church should be the perfect place for this. The church should be the place where we get this need fulfilled. Well, we have the spirit. They had spirits flowing in that place. The spirit of Miller Lite and the spirit of Michelob Ultra, the spirit of Jim Bean and Jack Daniels. And those spirits will get you somewhere. They will leave you with a headache. But we have the Holy Spirit. That spirit is the one that fulfills us. And we were there to sing songs about a person or from a person. That person was Eric Church. But when we gather together, not just in this context, but in our lives, and not just singing like vocally, but singing with our words, what we ought to be doing to one another is singing about another person, a person named Jesus. When we come together, whether it's in a small group or a gathering like this, and we sing about Jesus, we draw near to each other and in the presence of Jesus, something happens. We begin to get transformed, and our ought-tos begin to become want-tos. Friends, let me pray for you. Father, thank you for Haggai. God, thank you that as you stirred his heart to move the Jewish people 2,500 years ago, Lord, you knew also that we would be sitting here in Fargo, America in 2022, needing to hear the same message. Lord, that what you want from us is not just moral obedience. What you want from us is that we would desire the things that you desire. And God, you haven't left us alone in that, but you sent a king a king who wants the throne on our hearts and a king who the more time we spend with him, the more we become like him. Jesus, I pray today that you would call your people to draw near to you. I pray maybe for the first time, somebody who thought Christianity was one thing and they're seeing that it's something else would make the decision to follow you, make the decision to surrender, to make you the king of their heart. Friends, if you would take about 20 seconds, eyes closed, head bowed and say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Jesus, we need you. Pray that you would send your spirit to give us the courage and the will to obey what you've called us to do. And I pray, Lord, that we would leave here changed a little bit more as we spent time gazing upon your face. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.